from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Center for European Reform podcast. I'm Helmi Pillai, and I'm the Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow here at the CER. In this year's last episode of the podcast, we'll do a little year in review about 2022 and start looking to what might happen in 2023. This past year, the war in Ukraine has overshadowed everything else, so naturally this will be the focus of this episode too. With my colleagues, we will talk about the impacts of the war on energy, technology, and of course, foreign policy. Our first guest will be Ian Bond, the CER's Director of Foreign Policy. Ian, let's start with the basics. Has Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February changed your view of Russia's goals and capabilities? Well, I, I don't think it's changed my view of Russia's goals because I've thought for some time that uh, what Putin was trying to do was to reassemble parts of the former Soviet Union to extend Russia's sphere of influence, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, um, and above all, to get control of Ukraine. That's something which he set out in writing in uh, in a long essay last summer. But it's, it's something that he had alluded to um, back into the 2000s and even further back, back than that. He famously told George Bush, Ukraine is not a proper country or not a real country. So from that point of view, I don't think it's changed my view of, of Russia's objectives. But what it has done is to change my view of Russia's capabilities. Um, I was surprised by how badly the Russian armed forces performed, how ill-prepared they were for something which actually Putin at least had been preparing for for quite a long time. How effective do you think the Western response has been? I mean, it's been better than I feared, but not as good as I hoped. Perhaps I can put it that way. There's a there's a systemic problem in the way that the West has responded, which is that the concern not to escalate has translated into Western leaders telling Putin what they weren't going to do. And that, in a sense, gives him a, a, a threshold. You know, he he knows that X is not going to happen. Now, in fact, what, what has happened during the course of the last 10 months is that Western leaders have successively crossed those lines. So, you know, having said that they wouldn't supply long-range artillery and so on. They did, in fact, start to supply longer-range artillery. They've supplied various weapon systems, armoured vehicles and the like, that uh, initially they said they wouldn't. But, you know, we, we've still stuck to some red lines that, to my mind, don't make a lot of sense in terms of um, not supplying the Ukrainians with more aircraft, limiting the kinds of air defence that we have supplied and trying to ensure that the Ukrainians have not been able to hit Russian territory. Now, actually, they've devised ways of hitting Russian territory without our assistance. But there is a basic asymmetry in the fact that Russia is hitting Ukrainian territory from the east of Ukraine to the west of Ukraine, from bases and aircraft and ships that are outside Ukrainian territory. But Ukraine has not been given the tools to strike back very effectively at the Russians when they're doing that. And I think that's 
that's a problem. Uh, I think in terms of economic assistance, the West has done okay. Uh, the Americans have done much more than the Europeans, and that is a paradox considering that this is a conflict that is of much more direct importance to, to Europe and to European security than it is to US security. And I guess we've done a reasonable job of looking after Ukrainian refugees, although certainly in the case of the UK, that's now also starting to unravel. Some of the the assistance for Ukrainian refugees was time limited. And um, I think we need to take a fresh look at that and think, well, this conflict is going to go on for a long time. We have to be prepared to look after the humanitarian needs of people in the country for an equally long time. Thanks, Dan. And now I'd like to turn our focus to 2023 and ask you two questions related to that. One, what do you expect to happen on the battlefield in 2023? Do you think Ukraine will continue to outperform expectations? And two, do you think the West will remain united in its support for Ukraine? A lot turns on what the West provides Ukraine with by way both of equipment and training. So we're going to see a new EU training mission. The UK and some NATO allies have been providing training for Ukrainian forces. That's very important. The the quality of Ukrainian tactics and of Ukrainian fighting skills has generally been much higher than that of the Russians over the last 10 months. And that's something that uh, NATO countries and EU countries are now trying to build on. I think there are some constraints in terms of supplies for Ukraine. We're we're starting to understand that a modern war consumes a lot more munitions than we had probably been prepared for. The West having fought counterinsurgency campaigns effectively in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan was used to rather low consumption of munitions. And, you know, the Ukrainians and the Russians are firing thousands of shells, if not tens of thousands of shells at each other on a daily basis. That That's something which the West is struggling with and um, may become a constraint on how much Ukraine can do in the next year. But overall, I would expect that the Ukrainians will continue to develop their skills and continue to press the Russians very hard. I also expect that Putin will continue to mobilize more Russian troops and to throw them with relatively little training into the the meat grinder in the hope that he can overwhelm Ukraine by sheer force, force of numbers. I mean, that's very bloody. It's awful, creating huge long-term demographic problems for Russia itself, but it would be consistent with what Putin has done in other circumstances. And it does make it difficult for the Ukrainians. You know, they are constantly having to fight against new waves of, of troops, even if those troops are not very skillful. You know, they, they consume a lot of time and effort and ammunition to fight them off. So far, Western unity has held up remarkably well. Uh, there are outliers. The fact that Hungary is blocking a large slice of EU assistance for Ukraine, financial assistance for Ukraine, uh, is a problem, definitely. It's doing that for its own reasons, for reasons to do with the pressure that the EU is putting on it over the state of the rule of law in Hungary. But 
that doesn't alter the basic fact that it's making it more difficult for Ukraine to get the money that it needs to keep its government and its society operating over the next few few months. But on the whole, over sanctions, over supplies and so on, Western unity has held up pretty well. I do worry, particularly if the, the fighting becomes more or less a stalemate, where you know neither side seems to be making very much progress. I worry that the voices of those saying, well, you know, the the Ukrainians need to compromise. They need to accept that Putin will have to get some territory if he is to to be sort of bought off. That those voices are going to get louder, and they will clash with others, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, in Northern Europe, and indeed with the UK, which takes, in my mind, a much more realistic view of Putin's intentions and thinks that any kind of territorial compromise is just giving Putin breathing space and a better place from which to to launch future attacks, whether those come in, you know, one year, two years or five years. So I think there is a risk to um, to Western unity. I, the, the saving grace for the West uh, in a rather grim way has been that on many occasions when unity has come under threat in the last few months, some new Russian atrocity has come out which has, you know, enraged Western public opinion and has consolidated support for Ukraine. So, um, you know, the Russians are in many respects their own worst enemy. But I don't think we can take it for granted that the West will always remain united over the next year. It will take constant effort from those leaders who believe that this is the most important fight of our lifetimes and that Europe's security depends on defeating Vladimir Putin. You know, they, they need to keep making that case constantly to ensure that Western unity is preserved. Thanks a lot. My next guest is Luigi Scazzieri, who is a senior research fellow at the CER focusing on foreign policy. Luigi, can you start by telling us a little bit about European defense? What impact has the war in Ukraine had on the way that European defense is structured? And if I can follow up on that, what does NATO's revival mean for the EU's role in European security? Hi, Helmi, and uh, good to be on the podcast. So the first thing I'd say is that the conflict has clearly uh, strengthened NATO because the renewed threat uh, from Russia has placed a new focus on deterrence and highlighted how actually there is no alternative to uh, NATO's command structure and its experience when it comes to organizing deterrence. And the Allies are taking steps to increase the readiness of their military forces uh, and also to increase the actual number of troops deployed against their borders with Russia to uh, discourage uh, and deter any aggression. At the same time, this renewed emphasis on deterrence has highlighted just how essential the US contribution to European security is. So it's US forces in Europe and the US nuclear umbrella that are the linchpin really around which uh, deterrence is structured. Um, And of course, NATO is also being strengthened because it's set to gain Finland and Sweden as, uh, as new members so long as, uh, as both Hungary and Turkey ratify membership. Um, but having said all this, at the same time, the war has also highlighted how the EU uh, can and does play an important role in, uh, in defence matters. So, for example, the main thing I would highlight is that the EU has used its so-called uh, European Peace Facility to provide around $3 billion in uh, military support for Ukraine, uh, the money helps pay for member states to transfer weapons uh, to Kyiv. Um, and the EU has also played an important role in coordinating the deliveries of, uh, of military equipment to Ukraine. 
the conflict, I'd also say, has given new momentum to EU efforts to help member states improve their military capabilities. So, for example, the EU is trying to uh, coordinate member states' uh, efforts to replenish their stocks of munitions and to fill capability gaps, both those that are uh, long-standing uh, and have been known for a long time in areas like air transport, but also those that have been revealed by the sort of fighting in Ukraine, like having sufficient stocks of, of ammunition, air defence systems, and so on. And the Commission has proposed new tools to overcome some of the fragmentation that characterises the European defence industries and some of the inefficiencies that characterise European defence procurement by trying to encourage member states to procure equipment together. So the, the essence behind the, the proposals is to provide the incentives, essentially financial incentives, to jointly procure uh, military equipment that has also been developed together within the framework of tools that the EU already has, in particular its, its defence fund. The last thing I'd say is that the EU is, is playing a very important role when it comes to so-called military mobility, which uh, turns out to be a, a crucial element of, of European security if we think about the importance of troops and forces being in the right place at the right time, being able to reinforce uh, defences and to make deterrence credible. And um, because much of this involves improving infrastructure in physical terms, but also easing regulatory burdens to moving troops and equipment across Europe, this is something that the EU is, is playing a very important role in. So just, the, I suppose, the final word is that, in to my mind, the conflict has really underscored how both organisations are, are crucial and actually how they are complementary as well. Thanks, Luigi. And uh, you've also written quite a bit about enlargement. So if we could just talk about that briefly. One important development this year has been the EU granting Ukraine and Moldova candidate status. Can you tell us how this happened and what their path to the EU is likely to look like? So Ukraine and Moldova applied for membership just after Russia's attack in, uh, in February. And it wasn't initially clear whether member states would agree, but the Commission pushed very hard, as did some of the EU's uh, eastern and northern members. And eventually you had that visit by, uh, by the French, German, Italian and, and Romanian leaders that kind of gave the political signal that this was a, a done deal. And in June, EU leaders agreed that Ukraine and Moldova could become uh, EU candidates. That is a very important step. Uh, at the same time, the path to membership for the two remains long. They're joining a um, group of uh, candidate countries that has been waiting for quite a while, most of all uh, Turkey, which began accession talks in 2005. Broadly speaking, I'd say there are two sets of, of challenges. The first relates to the candidate countries themselves. And we know from the reports that the European Commission produces, but also from a range of independent assessments, that all the candidate countries face big challenges in meeting the conditions for membership defined by the so-called Copenhagen criteria, which define uh, EU standards on strong democratic institutions, a functioning market economy, and the ability to take on all the, all the obligations of membership. The biggest challenge is the rule of law, uh, and it's an issue on which, to varying degrees, candidate countries need to do more um, in terms of strengthening their judiciaries, fighting corruption, and establishing uh, efficient and accountable public administrations. So that's the first set of uh, challenges. The second is on the, on the EU side. Of course, you need consensus in order to, uh, to go ahead with the negotiations and then to go ahead with the decision to uh, admit uh, new members. 
that the negotiations themselves provide lots of opportunities for member states to slow down or, or veto the process. And many of them remain, I would say, lukewarm about uh, enlargement, despite having agreed to candidate status for, for Ukraine and Moldova. There are concerns about democratic backsliding in, uh, in candidate countries due to the EU's own experience with, uh, with the likes of Hungary and Poland, which really places the rule of law at the forefront of, of negotiations and especially means that for member states it is very important that the rule of law is very firmly entrenched to minimise the chances of, of backsliding. But at the same time, enlargement poses quite difficult questions about defence and, and the EU's finances. So in terms of, of finances, the existing candidates, there is a very large gap in, in terms of GDP with, with the EU members, which means that they would receive very large amounts of EU funding when they became members and net contributors to the EU budget would have to pay more. Or alternatively, existing beneficiaries like, uh, like Poland would have to settle for less. Um, and defence would also be an issue in the in the case of, uh, of Ukraine and Moldova, because both of them have unresolved territorial uh, questions with uh, with Russia, whether active in the case of the Ukraine conflict or, or frozen. And so long as that's the case, there is the potential for, for future conflict. And this makes many member states uncomfortable, because actually, as we've seen throughout the Ukraine war, they're very willing to support a country facing aggression from Russia, but not really to risk direct conflict with Russia. The final set of concerns is that expanding the EU exacerbates some of its current issues regarding the speed of decision making and um, would complicate that even further because of more opportunities for member states to, uh, to delay or veto decisions. And what this does is it means that current member states, particularly France and Germany, are insisting that you need EU reform and specifically you need a move from unanimity to qualified majority voting in a range of policy areas but especially tax and, and foreign policy. The problem with this is that you need all member states to agree to the shift. And there is a lot of scepticism, even from member states that are on paper in favour of, of giving up vetoes in practice. And um, some reforms might even need treaty change, which there is also as the response to the outcome on the future of the conference on the future of Europe showed there's also a lot of scepticism about that. So to my mind, all this means that enlargement will, will be slow. And there is a risk, of course, that the candidate countries will become disillusioned with the EU, that they will lose reform momentum. It is a risk that EU leaders are aware of, and I, I would say that they are trying to develop new ways to integrate candidate countries more closely prior to membership, deliver some of the benefits of membership, and actually to maintain political momentum. So there are changes underway in the accession process. Thanks, Luigi. Sounds like there'll be a lot to follow next year as well. Yeah. Let's now turn to Elisabetta Cornago a senior research fellow at the CER. Elisabetta, this past year, energy policy has taken much of your focus. As we all know, the war in Ukraine has caused a major energy crisis in Europe. How effectively do you think the EU has handled the crisis? What has it gone right and what, if any, should it have done differently? Thank you, Helmi. Um, I think it makes sense to to try and, I guess, distinguish between the, the good, the bad, and, and the points on which the, the jury is still out, possibly, when it comes to the EU policy response to the energy crisis. On the, on the good front, I think the EU has been fast in responding with good and, and strong strategic direction in terms of how to target the, the energy crunch and how to quickly uh, reliance dependence on Russian fossil fuel imports. And it has done so with strategic plan called the Repower EU, which clearly identifies as priorities for EU energy policy, saving energy, diversifying energy supplies away from Russia and quickly substituting fossil fuels by speeding up 
impact on, on the clean energy transition, on the decarbonization of EU's energy sector. So you know, I think it's been a good, a good thing to put all these very much front and center in, in EU energy policy and basically state how these should be driving the efforts of EU member states in getting out, in, in cutting their dependence on Russia as a main exporter of energy to Europe. More specifically, I think, you know, if we can identify a couple of specific measures that have worked out well until now, I think the targets to refill gas storage quickly ahead of winter have worked well as a sort of incentive and, and milestone in a way. And this has meant that Europe has started the winter on a strong footing, although that has been uh, very expensive and it has cost an estimated eight times more to refill gas storage this this time around than in previous years. Another, I think, good sort of concrete example of how this push has translated into energy policy on, on the ground, if you so wish, is how, for example, it has prompted the push to reduce the complexity of permitting uh, around the installation of renewables to, to make it faster. And so, again, to shift away from fossil fuels and, and towards uh, alternatives. A couple of points on which I think the jury is still out in the sense that I think there were decisions that needed to be taken, but that are whose, whose consequences, I guess, are, are complex and will, will take some time to fully unfold and, and assess are on the on the oil market front the EU approved it did take some time to approve but eventually did approve an embargo on Russian shipped oil and this has been followed by G7 agreed price cap on Russian oil imports and so the question here is to what extent this measure will succeed in cutting the, the revenues that Russia obtains from fossil fuel trade from oil trade or the extent to which they will basically prompt a redirection of these oil flows, I guess, uh, and, and allow Russia to maintain a substantial part of these revenues that, of course, it uses to fund its war on Ukraine. Another idea which I think is, is an important one and, and, and quite an important step forward in EU energy policy is this idea of going towards joint procurement of gas for at least a chunk of use uh, natural gas needs. I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, so far, it has not been really implemented in a fully fledged way, but I think it will it will become an important one, particularly as, as we go towards the next heating season, so next year. And then on, I guess, on to the, 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 difficult, the difficult points uh, in, in Europe's response to the energy crunch and those on which I think things should have been handled differently. In, in the past couple of months, particularly, there has been quite a bit of discussion and, in fact, I would say all-out fighting between the European Commission and member states on gas price caps, or as, as the technical term goes, a gas market correction mechanism. And this idea that putting an artificial limit on gas market prices can be the way out of the crunch, I think, is not, not, not the right one. And in fact, it has sucked up a lot of political attention and energy at a time when I think it would have been a lot more productive to focus on how to support households and businesses and in industry in investing in ways to durably reduce demand as opposed to, you know, trying to hide basically the gas price that is there to only signal ultimately a shortage uh, of, of gas on, on global markets as uh, and as Europe tries to do without gas supply. Indeed, I think sort of the second part to that is that Europe has been a bit timid, I think a bit shy in finding ways to structurally reduce its, its energy demand, particularly its gas demand. Yes, it's true that consumers have responded to high prices by trying to cut consumption, both gas and electricity, in fact, where they can, and, and so have done businesses. But 
the only way out of the crunch and the only way out to structurally reduce demand, as I said, without either keeping homes cold or businesses shut, is investment in energy efficiency. And I think this is very much what I hope to see more of in 2023 and more of in a coordinated way in a jointly sort of EU-wide investment push on this. Thanks a lot, Elisabetta. I think that's a, an excellent summary of what has happened last year. Could we now turn our focus a bit to 2023? How well prepared do you think the EU is to deal with the energy crisis next year? And do you expect it to get worse? Do you think there's some hope in sight that maybe 2023 will be a bit easier than 2022? I am afraid I am a bit pessimistic when it comes to next year, in the sense that for this winter, as I was as I was mentioning before, it has been an expensive feat, uh, in fact, for Europe to refill its gas storage and to start out the winter heating season, like, as I said, on a strong footing with, with full gas storage. But it has managed to do so also because the EU has still bought a lot of natural gas from Russia throughout 2022, which was a politically questionable decision, I guess, but ultimately is what, what helped uh, fill, fill storage. But through what, what has happened throughout uh, 2022 is that Russia on its side has gradually but steadily rustically cut gas supply to Europe. And what this means is that next year, refilling gas storage and so meeting gas demand, European gas demand, is going to be a lot more difficult. We could we could say the same also probably for, even though to, to a lesser extent, for oil demand in the sense that as uh, the EU embargo on most of, of, of Russian oil kicks in, the same type of questions, I guess, will, will partly merge on, on, on the oil front. But gas really is where Europe has been most vulnerable because it did rely on uh, on Russia's supply uh, for for a large chunk of its demand. Another factor that I think will make 2023 more difficult in this respect is that Europe will face increasing competition for alternative gas supplies with Asia. And so when it comes to sourcing alternative gas supply, we're mainly talking about liquefied natural gas that's shipped into Europe as opposed to provided via pipelines, which which used to be the main supply route, I guess, uh, via Russia. And as particularly gas demand in China picks up again, uh, as as the Chinese government seems to be walking back to some extent on zero COVID policies, then this will really lead to increased competition for securing these these additional gas supplies. And the market will remain tight in the next couple of years, at least until additional capacity, additional sources uh, of of gas come onto the market in in response to this sort of pivot away from pipeline gas that that Europe has uh, decided upon, of pipeline gas from Russia specifically of course. Another, I think, difficult aspect that will to the forefront uh, even further in 2023, I think, is the asymmetry independency on, on Russian gas and, and oil also among EU member states. And this means that should there be episodes of shortage next winter, I think for this winter, the risk of gas shortage is, is not non-existent, but it is low. If next year this becomes sort of more, more realistic, then energy solidarity will need to be materializing, you know, concretely and, and and become uh, visible should should push come come to shove. And another aspect that worries me, I guess, is that the price impact of the crisis is also asymmetric across countries. And uh, energy poverty, particularly, will increase substantially more in in Central and Eastern Europe, in the Baltics, and also in some countries in Southern Europe. Exposure of of businesses of energy intensive industry, particularly to to high gas prices, is also something that's very critical uh, and I think very much top of mind of you 
policymakers, particularly in recent weeks, and questions will, will need to be answered when it comes to how to maintain European competitiveness in the face of these high energy prices that will remain at uh, pretty much higher levels than, than pre-war levels uh, for the next couple of years. The thing is that not all member states have the same fiscal capacity to continue supporting consumers and businesses to the same extent as they have done in, in the past year, even though I'd say that response has been a bit unorganized really and not, not always optimal, not always targeted towards the neediest uh, households, not always targeted towards the neediest businesses. So Europe will need to become more strategic and Europe and its member states will need to become more strategic and better target its, its support in a way that, that can really lift particularly lower, lower income households out of the risk of, of energy poverty in, in the next years. And again, the way to durably do so is by supporting investment in energy efficiency that can cut demand and that and then can cut as a consequence, I guess, exposure to, to particularly high energy prices. So all this means that I think the discussion on possibly how to go about this type of strategic investment in a coordinated way at EU level will pick up again. And this, this will mean, I guess, hearing more of the terms like joint fiscal instruments and a potential recovery fund 2.0, or as it seems to be something that's discussed in, in Brussels this day, a potential sovereignty fund to, to support businesses uh, in the face of uh, high energy prices. Thanks, Joseph. Better sounds like you'll have a lot to write about next year as well. Next, I'll bring in Zach Myers, who's also a senior research fellow at the CER. Zach, you focus a lot on technology, so I thought I'd ask you a bit about the war from this point of view. So we start with the sanctions. The West has imposed very strict sanctions on Russia, which includes restrictions on technologies. How effective have the technology sanctions against Russia been thus far? And have they had any impact on Russia's ability to wage war in Ukraine? Uh, thanks, Hami, and it's good to be here. I, I think the short answer to your question is that the technology sanctions have been a lot more effective than anyone could have expected before the war started. So the main technology sanctions are export controls, which stop high-tech goods like semiconductors, computers, telecommunication equipment, lasers, and sensors from being exported to Russia. Uh, and the US sanctions in particular are, are quite severe because they don't just prevent exports from the US, but also exports from any third countries that use American inputs to those exports. So, you know, they do have significant extra territorial effect. And it, I think it became clear quite quickly that Russia's more sophisticated weaponry was not at all independent from Western or Western-aligned supply chains. And so they really were quite vulnerable to these types of export controls. And uh, when Russia didn't achieve a quick victory over Ukraine, which you know many commentators had initially expected and was certainly Russia's expectation, Russia soon found that replacing its military equipment became extraordinarily difficult. The think tank Russi said that it had identified about 400 50 unique components in Russian military equipment, which were sourced from Western manufacturers. And there's at least 70 different US and uh, European firms whose components have been found in in Russian weaponry. And, you know, we can see the, the effect of that when you look at how the war is going. Russia is increasingly relying on quite unsophisticated weapons like artillery and kind of older generation missiles. And in turn, that's led them into a war strategy, which is now much more about creating widespread destruction rather than targeting Ukrainian military installations and, you know, achieving a hasty victory. So I, on the Russian side, it's also led to widespread mobilization and conscripts being used as cannon fodder. So, you know, the outcome of this is kind of horrific for, for both sides, 
but it does nevertheless mean that Russia has been greatly hampered in its ability to actually win the war. Now, critics of the sanctions um, have pointed out that Russia hasn't been persuaded to leave Ukraine. And so some of them are saying, well, you know, these sanctions are a failure. But I think it is increasingly clear that Putin sees prosecuting the war with a kind of ideological fervor and is willing to accept huge losses and poverty in Russia in order to continue prosecuting it. So I, I don't personally think that it's feasible to think that any Western sanctions could have made Russia simply give up. But I do think that they've been successful in creating a far worse outcome for Russia than anyone expected. Um, I, I think, you know, the other complaint about sanctions is that Russia still has a huge account surplus, uh, which is largely because, you know, as, as Elizabeth pointed out, um, Russia is still able to sell uh, you know, very large quantities of fossil fuels. Um, and to that, I'd say that firstly, the surplus doesn't really matter in the context of these export sanctions, because what matters is not so much how much money Putin has, but what he can actually do with the money and whether he can use it to to buy the military equipment that he needs in order to prosecute the war successfully. And, you know, I, I think that we've seen that the sanctions have been good at preventing that from happening. Um, and, and the second point is that, again, as Elizabeth pointed out, the West has been genuinely trying to reduce that account surplus anyway, for example, by buying fewer Russian fossil fuels and putting price caps on, on those fossil fuels when they are bought. Finally, I'd say that, you know, there's a degree of sanctions dodging going on. Clearly, Russia has been able to get some uh, military equipment and inputs from countries that aren't prepared to fall in line behind the West. But it's certainly made Russia's life and its ability to to win the war um, a, a lot more difficult. So, you know, overall, I, I would say that these tech sanctions, uh, you know, have greatly impacted Russia. Zach, if we turn our focus to next year and the future more broadly, what do you think the impact of the technology sanctions will be in the short to medium term? How quickly do you think we'll be able to see their full impact? Well, I, I think the impact is going to grow over time. And, you know, as I mentioned before, it's really about Russia's ability to secure new imports to replace military equipment and uh, equipment that they need in other parts of their economy. And in the short term, you can find workaways around that. And in the medium term, you can also find some workarounds, for example, by kind of reconfiguring your equipment so it can take Chinese chips rather than a Western built ones. But none of that is is easy and it's going to lead to an economy and a military that's far less efficient. And I, th- I think it's important to keep in mind that the tech sanctions were not really intended to achieve short-term aims, but rather to create long-term constraints on Russia's ability to, to diversify its economy and to modernize it. Uh, and, and I think that's really critical because Russia knows that in the long term, it's not a sustainable business model for a country to just be exporting fossil fuels, especially when one of your biggest customers is Europe, which is taking climate change more seriously than um, the many other countries. And, you know, even today, Russia's foreign reserves are to a very large extent closely connected with the amount of fossil fuels that it's exporting. So I, it's very clear that in the long term, these tech sanctions are going to lead to Russia being much less well off on average than, than it has been today if they stay in place. You know, this has had huge impacts on other parts of Russia's economy, not just the military. The car manufacturing industry has been um, greatly impacted. It's led to a need to kind of deregulate elements of of car manufacturing. So for example, airbags are no longer compulsory because it's impossible for the Russian car industry to to produce cars with them because they can't get access to the Western imports needed. It's expected that many uh, civilian airplanes are going to be grounded over the next couple of years because it's impossible to obtain replacement parts and to do the necessary maintenance. At the moment, Russia seems to be, you know, cutting the 
a number of um, civilian aircraft that it's actually using and then kind of pillaging the unused aircraft for spare parts. But, you know, that can only take you so far. And certainly it's expected in the next year or two, planes are just going to be um, completely grounded. Similarly, it'll be very difficult for telecoms networks to get upgraded and I think more than anything, the recession and the lack of growth that the Russian economy is going to see and its ability to grow in high-tech sectors is going to mean a brain drain of talented, skilled labor out of Russia, um, you know, moving to places that are going to have more economic opportunity. So I think, you know, Russia can find ways around this to some degree, for example, by increasing its reliance on China and India. But we know a couple of things about that already. Uh, one is that for China in particular, there is a reluctance to to undermine the sanctions in too clear and obvious a way. So although Russia diplomatically is still standing behind Russia, in, in substance, it's not really willing to, to fully step into the gap. Secondly, we know that countries like China and India are going to strike quite a hard bargain when they're doing trade with Russia, because they'll know that Russia has fewer alternative trading partners to do business with. And in particular, it will be heavily reliant on China for certain types of imports. And thirdly, for Russia in the long term, relying increasingly on China and India is going to be quite a bad move for them strategically, because Russia is going to turn out to be the junior partner in those relationships, which will have a significant impact on its autonomy and, and, and freedom to make its own choices. So I, I do think, you know, we, we don't know how the war is going to end. And clearly, a peace deal is going to have to involve some discussion about which sanctions, if any, are going to stay put in the long run. But the tech sanctions, I, I think, are, are, are kind of slow burn sanctions that have more and more impact over time. Thanks, Zach. My final guest today will be Charles Grant, director of the CER, who will take us back to geopolitics. Charles, how has the war impacted the West relations with China? I think the war has made the relationship rather more strained than it was because it's reminded people in the West that Russia and China are very close politically and diplomatically and in some respects militarily. China has, of course, given diplomatic support to, to Russia, rhetorical support. It's blamed the West for the war in Ukraine. And it really seems from China's point of view, it doesn't have much choice but to do that because China is obsessed with the US, which it sees as a threat. It believes that the US is committed to overthrowing the regime in China. So if the US is in conflict with anybody, China really has to support the other side on that conflict. And furthermore, Russia offers a lot of diplomatic support to China on the UN Security Council. They have an agreement not to criticize each other's behaviors at home. And they both agree in suppressing democratic revolutions all over the world where they impede their own interests. So as far as China is concerned, Russian, Russia should not fail and should not lose this war. The other, Another reason I think why China has been so supportive of Russia and really wants to help Russia, at least diplomatically, is that Russia is becoming more dependent on China. Russia is quite weak economically and quite isolated diplomatically. So Russia needs China's support and help, which of course increases China's clout vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So for all these reasons, China is not planning to abandon Russia, even if the war is not going well for Russia. However, as of course we've seen, Russia has not done very well in the war. And this has caused some embarrassment for China. I think China therefore is moderating some of what it says diplomatically in support for Russia. It said recently when Schultz visited Beijing that it did not support the use of nuclear weapons and or even the threat of the use of nuclear weapons, which was a sort of a moderate rebuke for Putin who had been th making such threats. And I think the Chinese still hope that the Europeans, the European Union, 
in particular will be a little kinder to them, a little softer on them than the than the Americans will be. So I think the, the Chinese are making efforts to reach out to the more moderate elements of the European Union, like Schultz and like Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, who was recently in Beijing, trying to kind of prize them away from very close relationship with the Americans when it comes to China. Thanks, Charles. Now, if we look into 2023 and the future more broadly, what do you think will happen? Are we heading for a new Cold War between the West and China and Russia? Well, I think the, by pushing China and Russia rather closer together and indeed closer to their close friends like Iran, I think the war is, is leading to, is pronouncing an already existing tendency for there to be two political blocks in the world. It's a kind of political Cold War. It's not quite democracy versus authoritarianism. It is partly that. But of course, some of the countries that Western governments hope will line up with them against Russia and perhaps China too, like Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, Singapore, Kazakhstan, are not democracies. So perhaps it'd be better to characterise this as the Cold War between the West and its friends, and arguably the West and those committed to some degree of rule of law, and then those who prefer to be friends with Russia and China. Of course, most countries in the world don't want to be caught in in this fight between two great elephants, the Americans and the Chinese. They'd rather they'd rather not have to choose sides. They want to have good relations with both. And so some countries like Iran and Venezuela have cho- very clearly chosen one one side of that relationship. But I th- guess the question really, Helmi, is whether, we, as well as this political rift, which is increasingly important now, whether we also get economic decoupling. And I think there has been a little bit of economic decoupling already at the level of high technology issues with America restricting the export of the best sorts of microchip to China in order to damage or to to weaken China's ability to develop the most advanced kinds of weaponry. We've seen China promoting the so-called dual circulation economy, whereby it, the most, some strategically important goods, goods, it tries to make sure it can make them all at home rather than depend on imports. So I think there is the level of high tech, there is a certain amount of decoupling already. Hopefully it won't go too far down towards the other, other parts of the economy, because both economies do depend on each other for, for, for trade, to, for mutual benefit. And if there was a real decoupling, then the damage would be quite, uh, quite severe to both, particularly to the Germans in Europe, who are so dependent on China economically, but not just to them, to everyone as well. What do you think Europe's role will be in the US-China rivalry? The trend of the last 10 years has been for the relationship between the West, the US and the EU, and China to worsen, though obviously it's got much worse between the Americans, the Chinese, than the Europeans and the Chinese, because the Europeans depend more on the Chinese economy, a little bit more than the Americans do. And I think the Europeans are concerned about Chinese behaviour, whether it's on human rights or the theft of intellectual property, more than they're concerned about Chinese power per se, while America, being a superpower in its own right, is concerned about Chinese power. So I think even if China started to behave better, America would still see China as a significant threat. Well, if China behaved better, the Europeans might go back to being quite chummy with the Chinese. So that is the difference between the Europeans and the Americans. But let me just make a a prediction for 2023, which goes against the trend of the last 10 years, which I actually think that relations with the West, between the West and China may well soften a bit, just because China has got so many domestic difficulties. Its economic growth has slowed down to perhaps 2% a year, which is by Chinese standards is incredibly slow. It's trying to come out of its COVID lockdowns with, with some difficulty. And when it does, there may be a lot of people dying from COVID. And there's been so much unrest recently as public, the public in China really starting to resist the, the rather extreme lockdowns that the Chinese have been 
imposed under Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping's authority. So I think China has so many difficulties at home, it really is not the right moment for taking on the West by invading Taiwan, for example, or doing something like that. So I think that I would expect the Chinese to focus on consolidating the, the position of the party at home, strengthening governance at home rather than picking fights with, with the West. I, th- I would suspect a slightly softer foreign policy from the Chinese. I may be proved wrong, of course, but I think certainly, as we've seen recently, the Chinese will try and, as I said before, reach out to the Europeans and try and see if they can prize them apart from the Americans. And that'll be a great test for the Western allies in 2023. Can they maintain a fairly united front vis-a-vis China, given that some Europeans, particularly in Germany, still want to have a, a really quite close and chummy relationship compared to people in Washington who are much tougher in the way they treat the Chinese? Chinese. Thank you, Charles. And that's all we have for today. Thank you very much to everyone who has listened to the CR podcast this past year. We really hope you've enjoyed it. Please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to it. We'll be back in January with new episodes. Happy holidays to everyone and see you next year. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.